Church, and welcome back to the book of Revelation. We're so glad that you're joining us, whether it's on a podcast months from now or even years from now, or maybe you're watching on demand, or maybe you're live right now on Site 5 or in one of our other locations. No matter who you are, where you are, we want to welcome you today. And like I said, welcome back to the book of Revelation. And if you were with us last week, I hope you were. Last week's passages were, hmm, wow, wow, wow. The four horsemen of the apocalypse already in the world, growing in influence, deception, war, murder, famine, disease, plague, death, the small t tribulation already here growing into a capital T. And yet, and yet, and yet, we were reminded that none of that has the final word or final say. And we were also reminded by the words of Jesus that pain, the birth pains, leads to what we're all waiting for, the return of Jesus and the restoration of all things. So in other words, Let's be encouraged as we get going again today. The world is not spinning out of control. All of this is the birth pains before the new life comes. And remember, we were in Revelation 6 and 7. Who's breaking all the seals? Jesus is. In other words, Jesus is in control of history. And in the end, Jesus will come back and will remove the horsemen forever and ever. But maybe you caught this as we were hanging out last week. There are seven seals that Jesus was supposed to break, but we only did six. What about the seventh? And remember, seven means perfection and completion. Well, we got to get to chapter eight to see that moment. And what a powerful moment it is. This is when Jesus breaks the seventh seal. And remember, as we keep going through this, this is metaphor and allegory and image, and it's not written in the chronological order. Let me set the scene. In this moment, there's a huge like pause or breath. This amazing pause is where we all get lifted above all of history and we see one of the greatest things that changes the history of the world. What has been and what will be and what is one of the most powerful levers or influences on the affairs of the world? Ha <laughs> It's prayer. Remember John himself 2,000 years ago and those seven churches, the original audience, They didn't have any power. They didn't have voting rights. They didn't have church buildings. There wasn't organizations. They didn't have sway. There weren't even hundreds of thousands of Christians. The only thing that they had was prayer. But prayer changes history. Revelation 8.1, when he opened the seventh seal, that's Jesus, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. Like, that should tell you how important this is. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God and the seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel who had a golden censer or bowl came and stood at the altar. And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all of God's people on the golden altar in front of the throne. And and the smoke of the incense together with the prayers of God's people went up before God and from the angel's hand. And then the angel took that bowl, that censer, filled it with fire from the altar and hurled it to the earth. And there came peals of thunder and rumbling and flashing of lightning and an earthquake. Okay, this is when the role from heaven's view of prayer between the first and second coming of Jesus, becomes clear. These bowls are filled in heaven with the prayers that will be said, are being said, and will be said and sung between the first and second coming of Jesus. And what's amazing, did you know that Jesus has, is, and will use them to change history? 
I love when Eugene Peterson said this, the prayers are not simply stored on the altar. They're mixed with the fire of God's spirit and they return back to the earth. Prayer is as much inner as it is outer. It is the most practical thing anyone can do. It's not, I love this, mystical escape. It's historical engagement. Prayer participates in God's action. God gathers our cries and gathers our praises and gathers our petitions and gathers our intercessions. And then God, I love this, uses them. The prayers that I send to God now are coming back to earth. God uses our prayers in his work. See, this reminds us that in all the chaos and the four horsemen and tribulation and prayer changes the world. Well, after such an amazing moment that reveals the power of prayer, we now come back downstairs again. And as we've learned since week one, we have been living in the end times since the birth of Jesus. And this next group of verses, very confusing, poetry-based, imagery-laden, is what has and will happen also between the first and second coming of Jesus. So we move from seven seals now to seven angels with seven trumpets. And, and what you've got to catch is chapter six, seven, eight, and nine happen in the same period, but just a different vantage point. Now, all of this is about a word that actually most of us don't like. The seven trumpets we're about to read through are all about a word called judgment. And just like we're living in the tribulation, small t now, and we're living during the time of the four horsemen now, so the Bible is actually pretty clear. This is going to shock a lot of you who've grown up in church. That we're also living in the time of God's judgment in part now. But it's not total judgment. This is the beginning, the answer to the cry of those who have been and will be slain for being Christians. Remember their cry in Revelation 6.10, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Let me say this again. The six seals are the consequences actually of our own sin, what's happening down here. But now this is God's part in the in-between moment. And as we look at the same time period, again, between first and second coming of Jesus, the focus is now on God's judgment that has already started and is increasing. Let me just say this again. The judgment of God is already happening in our world, but it's not total judgment yet. Again, I'm going to say this too. This is not written chronologically, one to the next to the next. It's the overall feel of God's judgment on a hostile, rebellious world. And what matters most is this. This is a repeat, you're going to see this, of the Exodus story on a global scale. And if you're taking notes, you need to write this down. The people of God, the Jews, were slaves under Pharaoh and lived in Egypt. Have you thought about this? During the plagues. And then they were set free. And what John is saying, the same thing is happening right now on a global scale. So listen close, everyone. For 2,000 years, we, the people of God, found in Jesus, marked by the Lamb, are living in a world run and owned by the demonic and sin and death. And the judgments, the plagues, are happening and going on now and are growing. But the end tells us we will be set free. We will come out of the larger Egypt. So each trumpet we're about to read about is the judgment of God on the earth. 
Verse 6, Then the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to sound them. The first angel sounded his trumpet, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood. It was hurled down to the earth, and a third of the earth was burned. A third of the trees were burned, uh, and, and all the green grass was burned up. Well, then a second angel sounded his trumpet, and, some, and something like a huge mountain, all ablaze, was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea turned into blood, and a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. And, and then the third angel sounded his trumpet, and a great star blazing like a tor torch fell from the sky on the third of the rivers and on the springs of water, and the name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters turned bitter, and many people died from the waters that had become bitter. Well, then the fourth angel sounded his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of them turned dark, and a third of the day was without light, and a third of the night. Now, if you catch it, so many of these plagues are like a larger version of Moses' plagues against the Egyptians. Rivers turning to blood, fish dying, the sky being covered in thick darkness. But that was in one country. Now this is global. Do you see the scale? Basically, if you read this, the earth's food supplies are threatened. The oceans and the rivers are poisoned. Commerce and trade is, is, is disturbed. Drinking water is poisoned. In other words, nature is broken. The very things we need to live and thrive as human beings is broken, will be broken, is being broken, will be broken more. So is this happening already? Oh, of course it is. It's been progressively getting worse for 2,000 years. It's already here. Just think about this. Pollution, le legitimately, the death of fish in our seas, the lack of drinking water globally, the list goes on and on. This is not tomorrow completely. It's today also. Earthquakes and tornadoes and ice caps are melting and flooding and mass extinction of species and there's toxic dust storms happening in East Asia. Could it get worse? Yes. Will it get worse? Yes. Could Wormwood, as an example, be like a meteorite that does damage to our world? Possibly, but see, actually, so many people get so caught up with all of this, they miss the point. Seven times in those four trumpets, the phrase or the idea of one-third was used. One-third of the earth, one-third of the sea, one-third of the rivers, one-third of the waters, one-third of the sun, one-third of the moon, one-third of the stars. It's not a literal one-third. It means some... Not all. Do you see it? <laughs> Judgment is now, but it's not total yet. In other words, God is trying to get our attention. Full judgment is coming, but not yet. And here's the point. There's actually mercy right now. The one-third is mercy. There is mercy, but see, you need to repent. You have to accept Jesus. You need to turn to the living God. Time is running out. The trumpets are warnings. The trumpets have been blowing for 2,000 years and are increasing in volume. Are we as human beings listening? Are we? It's like the Old Testament story of the watchman on the wall found in the book of Ezekiel. It's in chapter 33. I think it's verse 3. And the watchman sees the sword coming against the land. <laughs> and blows the trumpet to warn the people. Then if anyone hears the trumpet but does not heed the warning, and the sword comes and takes their life, the blood is on their own heads. Since they heard the sound of the trumpet but did not heed the warning, their blood is on their own head. If they had heeded the warning, they would have saved themselves. All the natural stuff happening is the beginning of judgment. 
But the point is not to destroy us, but to get our attention. Well, at this moment, it's like there's another pause, a breath. From heaven's view, more is happening. And so it says in verse 13, As I watched, I heard an eagle that was flying in midair, that's like heaven's perspective, and called out a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth, because the trumpet blasts are about to be sounded by uh, three other angels. So we come to the fifth trumpet. And this actually is one of the scariest parts of the whole Bible. Remember, again, not written in historical, chronological order. We're taken back, actually, to the fall of Satan and the harm that that the demonic have caused, are causing, and will cause to humans in the earth. Revelation 9.1, The fifth angel sounded his trumpet, and I saw a star that had fallen from the sky to the earth. And the star was given the key to the shaft of the abyss. By the way, this fall is about the fall of Satan, the god of this age, the ruler of the world, one of the great archangels in heaven that chose to rebel against God. He and the demonic are in people, are founders of thoughts and systems. And why do we know this is Satan? Well, this verse is patterned from the Old Testament and the New. Isaiah 14, 12, How you've fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn. You who have been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. Or Luke 10, 18, I saw, this is Jesus, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And then John is given this really vivid, scary, overwhelming description of the demonic. What principalities, powers, rulers, and, 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 and these authorities feel like. When he opened the abyss, smoke rose from it like a smoke from a gigantic furnace. And the sun and the sky were darkened by smoke from the abyss. And out of the smoke, locusts came down on the earth and were given the power, that of a scorpion of the earth. And they were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any plant or tree, but only those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Oh my goodness. Don't misunderstand this. This is not a total overall statement. Every Christian who's been living between the first and second coming of Jesus, like we found out last week, already have the seal of God on their forehead, the mark of the Lamb, the Holy Spirit. It's not a literal mark. It's not vaccines or microchip. It's, it, no, no, it's the Spirit of God. And the amazing news, if you are a Christian today, is between the first and second coming of Jesus, even though the demonic's influence is vast and deep and scary, they don't own you. They don't have you. And in the ultimate sense, they cannot harm you. Oh, can we be persecuted by the demonic? Oh, yes. Uh, Are many Christians hunted and killed for following Jesus? And the people doing the hunting are inspired by the demonic? Yes. Do they set up worldly systems? Yes. But they do not ultimately own us. And they cannot ultimately harm us because they cannot stop the resurrection. And remember, the seal of our marking is the Holy Spirit who guarantees our resurrection. But, hey, listen, if you're listening today, listening to me today, if you have not accepted Jesus, God's only Son, then you don't have His seal, and you don't have the work of Jesus on your life, then you have no protection. And that's the point. It says in verse 5, they were not allowed to kill them, but only torture them for five months. Ooh. And the agony they suffered was like that of a sting of a scorpion when it strikes. By the way, this verse is so important because metaphorically it reminds us Again, that the suffering that we have in this world is only for a time. By the way, locusts only live five months. The point again here is the influence and time of the demonic is limited. They are not God. Well, it says in verse 6 in chapter 9, during those days people will seek death. They're not going to find it. 
They'll long to die. Death will elude them. The locusts looked like horses prepared for battle, and on their heads they wore something like a crown of gold, and their face resembled a human face. And their hair was like women's hair, and their teeth were like lion's teeth, and they had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the thundering of many horses and chariots rushing into battle, and they had tails with stingers like scorpions and in their tail they had the power to torment people for five months and they had a king over them oh the angel of the abyss whose name in hebrew is abaddon and in greek it's apollyon which means destroyer in other words the demonic are powerful they're organized they're real and their goal is to destroy people and god's creation but the thing that we need to wrestle with is their presence is also connected to god's partial judgment Those that do not want or have God's seal, Jesus' protection, will be under the influence and rule of these things. I mean, this is heaven's view, and this is what Paul has already taught us, and a lot of us really struggle with this, but we have to be biblical. 2 Corinthians 4.4, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ who is the image of God. The Bible is clear that every human being on earth, sincere or not, religious or not, secular or not, is either owned by God or Satan. We're either the citizen of one kingdom or another. Do you believe this? The bulk of humanity at this moment, most people that you know, are incapable of even seeing Jesus or the truth. See, I say this all the time, possession is positional and sometimes presence. In other words, you're either owned by Jesus or still owned by the other side. There's no in between. It says in verse 12, the first woe is past and two other woes are yet to come. The sixth angel sounded his trumpet and I heard a voice coming from the four horns of the golden altar that's before God. And it said to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. And the four angels who had been kept ready for this hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of humanity. The number of the mounted troops was twice, 10,000 times 10,000. I I heard the number. And the horse and riders I saw in my vision looked like this. Their breastplates were fiery red and dark blue and yellow as sulfur. The head of the horses resembled heads of lions and out of their mouth came fire and smoke and sulfur. And a third of humanity was killed by the plague of fire, smoke, and sulfur that came out of their mouth. The power of the horse was in their mouths and in their tails, and their tails were like snakes having heads which they inflicted injury. You're like, what? Is this like some acid trip? Like, what what is all this? Well, in John's time, the Romans were terrified by a large group in the east called the Parthians. And they actually thought that this was a prophecy that the Parthian Empire in the East would destroy Rome. See, by this point, Rome had already lost two major battles to them. And they were famous, interestingly, for their archery. And they had the most famous horsemen in the world. But that's not how it really worked out. Much later, in the last 50 or 60 years, many people say this is happening now. I remember when I was a teenager, I was at a local Pentecostal church. And a a pastor was preaching. He said, oh, see, this is is the future. This is communist China from the East, 200 million soldiers, and they're going to strike the world. And all these weird images of horses and snakes are really helicopters and tanks and ballistic missiles. And they're the locusts, and they're the snake, and they're the scorpions from the East. But actually, really, this is just another picture of the demonic and their power. 
their strength, their influence on people, on systems, on governments, on families, vast and organized. But here's the point, no matter what this fully means, it's not forever. It's not total power. But this is allowed by God to get our attention. It's actually to strike us dumb, to let us know how serious the situation is. So we would expect, of course, that God, again, not bringing full judgment and actually giving us mercy and with all the pain in the world and disasters in the world and all the stuff we're going through right now and with the presence of the demonic touching us, we would all (coughs) turn to a loving God and repent and ask for God's help. We would hear the trumpet, we'd hear the warning, and we'd say, oh my goodness, there's a way out. There's help. (coughs) But the question is, as a human family, have we done this? No. Overall, we don't want the help. That's why verse 20 says this. (laughs) The rest of mankind, of humanity, who were not killed by these plagues, still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, and bronze, and stone, and wood, idols that cannot see, hear, or walk. Nor did they repent of murder and their magic arts and sexual morality or their thefts. I mean, that sort of sounds like us, doesn't it? I mean, idolatry is worshiping any other God other than Jesus, who exposes us fully to the Father and the Spirit. So any other religious worldview, idolatry. Idolatry can also be spiritual power that's not from God. You can also make sex, money, power, education. You can make anything an idol. And then murder's murder. (laughs) And Jesus talks about even how anger becomes murder and that's everywhere in our feeds. And then magic, un- un- ungodly, not connected to the Holy Spirit, supernatural power. Well, that's in every bookstore I walk into. Oh, and sexual immorality. Yeah. Any act the Bible explicitly forbids as sin. Yep, that's us. Oh, and theft. Have you really thought about theft lately? It's everywhere. People steal all the time. They steal from their works. They steal people's reputations online. People steal land. Governments steal things. Corporations steal things. The amount of con games going on. I mean, even this week in my life, two fake Instagram accounts, people trying to ask money on my behalf. Theft is everywhere. So in other words, our nations and our families and friends and coworkers overall will not repent en masse. They won't. And actually, this is what Paul said earlier in Romans 1.18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godliness and uh, godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Uh, the wrath of God is already being revealed. In Greek, by the way, this is important for some of you who struggle with church. There's two words for wrath. One is where we get our word thermometer from. You know, hot, angry, impulsive, passionate, flies off the handle, indiscriminately lashes out. No, that's not our God. The second word for wrath is settled, controlled, not emotionally driven, and not driven by ego, but truly driven by justice. See, the seven trumpets are sounding, warning, calling us to action. And what we read in Revelation and Romans is this, uh, Revelation, the book of Revelation and Romans is this, the wrath of God is now being revealed against godlessness and wickedness. By the way, godlessness means to fall back from or shrink from. It, it's, it's liking acts of non-reverence. It actually begins to talk about lifestyles of irreverence, which leads to either unknown or known contempt of God. 
And wickedness just means I violate God's divine law. And, and let me just share this again. God didn't wake up one day and say, I don't like murder, lying, and stealing. God hates murder because he's a life-giving God. God hates adultery because he's a, he's a covenant-keeping God. God hates stealing because he's a gift-giving God. See, what we need to continually understand is when we sin, we don't just break God's law. We attack God himself because the laws are his DNA. Wickedness. And then Paul says that we keep even suppressing the truth. The image is humanity trying to keep the lid on a container, but it cannot be contained. And it's active. Uh, one person gave this great analogy. This is much like a little boy who smuggles his dog into a room to spend the night with him. And when he hears his parents coming in, he puts the dog in the toy box, sits on the lid, trying to talk to his parents while ignoring the repeated thump, thump, thump of the poor pet trying to get out. That's us. And by the way, before any of us can yell out, that's not fair, that's not right, that's not... He says in Romans 1.19, God's knowable, since what we may know about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them, to us. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so people are without excuse. Hey, everyone, it's plain. There's nothing hidden, Paul says. This is not a secret. You don't need triple PhDs to know God. He's shown himself powerfully, unequivocally. We can't know everything about God, but we can know there's a creator. Like I said to my kid one day, I sat them down in a room and I said, point to anything in the room. And they pointed to a bookshelf. I said, do you think that just came to be? He said, no, someone had to make that. I said, exactly. So what do you think about the world? He said, well, of course there has to be a creator. Right. God's a God of order. He's an artist. He's a mathematician. He's a moral God. So from the fine-tuning of the universe to, have you thought about it, every culture on earth shares a moral code to our desire always to worship something beyond ourselves, God's invisible qualities are clearly shown. I love that Kepler, the founder of modern astrology, astronomy, not astrology, sorry, astronomy, he's the one who actually discovered the three planetary laws. He's the guy who actually invented the word satellite actually said the unreligious or undevout astronomer is mad. That's what David said in Psalm, I think, 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day and night they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. Whew. Revelation 8 and Revelation 9. Let me just say this again. You need to pair last week's sermon and this one together because it's sort of upstairs and downstairs giving you the whole picture. I love when one person said this, the seals showed the suffering church pleading for justice to be done. But I love this, but the trumpets show the wicked world being offered mercy. The offer is not accepted and the world will not in fact repent. Here's the moment. But let it never be said that God has not done all in his power even to the devastation of his own perfect earth in order to bring men and women to their senses. If you're a Christian, I know not all of us who connect to Sanctus Church virtually or physically are, but if you are a Christian here today, a genuine follower of Jesus, this is what the living God is sharing to you at this moment. God is reminding you this, I'm about to bring you out. There is a reason why the plagues of Moses are being repeated again in our time in a grander scale over thousands of years. For we that are people of the Lamb, just like the Jews, 
as we see judgment all around us, it is not to scare us. It is not to make us freak out or to panic. It is to remind us our Savior is on the way. The plagues are the sign we're living in Egypt, but not for long. (laughs) Jesus is returning. will be with us. We'll make all things right. And so, hey, you want to take home this week? Don't be jealous of the world. Don't give your life to Egypt. Don't be seduced by all the things that seem right and good because all that's going to pass away. The stuff where the judgment's happening breaks. The one who's leading us out, you want him. I want to encourage you today. He's coming. Don't be overwhelmed as all the stuff is happening. Number two, to us as Christians again, this is, this is really important. Here we see the power of prayer. Let, let me read that passage again. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it to the earth. The power of prayer, bringing the kingdom of God onto earth as it is in heaven. So, hey, church, in the middle of four horsemen and the results of our sin and all these seals being broken, and in the middle of God's growing but not full judgment, the seven trumpets, there's still a moment where heaven holds its breath And we see the power of prayer. The golden bowls are filled with the ongoing prayer of God's people. Between the first and second coming of Jesus, prayer is the most powerful tool to change the world. And I want you to think about this. If you're a Christian because of the Holy Spirit in Jesus, you have access to the fullness of God. And it doesn't matter if you have money, politics, irrelevant, privilege, irrelevant, power, irrelevant, followers are no irrelevant. And what is God asking us to do as a church? Fill the bowls. Fill the bowls. Fill the bowls. Because those bowls, when they're pulled out, move history. I love when a really old, famous New Testament person wrote this. The significance of this picture can hardly be overestimated. No one was more aware than John of the limitations of individual men and women and what they can do to change history and bring the kingdom of heaven down, particularly in the face of cosmic forces against them and even the transcendent character of the kingdom itself. And by the way, hey, just so we know, none of us can raise the dead. Ah, but we can pray to him who has almighty power. And it would seem, it would seem that God has decided to take our prayers and our prayers of his, you know, his people's prayers should be in the process of his kingdom coming. The interaction between the sovereignty of God and the prayers of the saints is ultimately mystery, but faith calls us to take both seriously. Hannah, Abraham, Moses, Daniel, Jesus, Paul, Peter, John, do you notice the pattern? Elijah, Elisha, all standing, all praying, all standing in the gap because they knew who had real power and they knew the place where that power was and they knew that place was real perspective. Want to change your family? Like legitimately. Want to change your school? Want to change your neighborhood? Want to change this country? Want to see a grand thing take place that is impossible? Oh, there's lots of stuff you can do. But the real inception point of change is prayer. And there are so many, so many things 
that we can do. I was sharing on Instagram, I think a year or two ago, maybe a year ago, that sometimes in my family, there's this amazing book and app called Operation World, where it actually gives you prayer requests for every single country on earth. How many Christians there are? Who hasn't met Jesus yet? What's going on politically? I mean, you wanna change the world, seriously. We've seen so much garbage and pain and hurt and misunderstanding and distrust in the last 15 to 18 months, and we've posted a lot, but how much have we prayed? Because that's what changes history. So if you want to see the GTA radically change, you want to see evil systems broken, you go into the place of prayer and ask the living God to get involved. That's what God is calling us to do. We need to understand as we come out of COVID, as our sites begin to rebuild, as more people come to faith, as God does new things, this church still must be a place of prayer because prayer changes the world. And in the midst of seven, uh, seven trumpets and horsemen, this has to be the greatest priority. So remember, he's coming back and you're going to be okay. Pray, pray, and if you're bored, pray again. And lastly, let me just say this to some of you. Again, like I think I said last week, maybe it was to the Ajax community, because I spoke here. Um, I had the privilege of being on a plane, uh, or not privilege, multiple COVID tests, it was pretty interesting. Vancouver, Seattle, Vancouver, Toronto. But I was saying in our Ajax site here that I intentionally watched, because it had been years since I'd been on a plane like to the States, to see if anyone paid attention to the stewards or stewardesses as they gave the instructions of how to get safe if something bad happens. No one watched. No one watched. But see, God, it's not a mistake you're listening to me. The living God of heaven and earth is speaking to you right now and is now letting you know that all the chaos you see around you is actually fine-tuned to get your attention so you can get mercy. Like I said week one, like I said last week, like I'm gonna say again, for Christians, when Jesus returns, it's gonna be so amazing. Homecoming, the one that we love and given our life to, the one who saved us. We're not better than anyone else. We just ask for mercy. We as Christians can't wait for Jesus' return because we get to see him, be with him, salvation, redemption, forget. But if you die, or you're here when Jesus returns and you don't have his covering and his love and his work and his forgiveness. You're left with you on judgment day, facing a perfect holy God who's gonna ask about your life. And the result will be judgment because there will be no covering. There'll be no covering. The living God of heaven and earth is coming close to you and revealing your seriousness, the seriousness of your situation. He is declaring your sin is that offensive. It's that serious, even if you're the nicest person on earth. But his mercy is grander than his judgment. You just must turn to Jesus and say, and mercy on me, a sinner. I need Jesus's mark, covering, love. I want homecoming, not judgment. I just want to say this again. I know we're very uncomfortable with this, especially as Canadians. But don't harden your heart. Don't dismiss this. God is trying to get your attention so you can have mercy. Turn while there's time. And if you have turned, don't be marked by fear. Be a person of prayer. Father and Son, send the Holy Spirit. Give our church hope. Forgive us when we have looked at the world and felt like it's spinning out of control and we've forgotten that actually you're here. Thank you, God, that it's not everything. It's only one third, that there's mercy. Thanks for your mercy on us. 
I pray again, Holy Spirit, whether it's by spiritual gift or discipline, you grow this church in prayer, praying for life change, praying for revival, praying for just do it, Lord. And I ask you to pray for my friends who have not yet crossed the line of faith that in this moment, as, as their sin is exposed, as judgment is exposed, like it happened to us, they would say yes and become our brothers and sisters. Do impossible works in all three directions, we ask in Jesus' name. We all said together, amen. Thank you.